This is Guns and Butter. What I'm absolutely convinced of is at Gebekli Tepe, we've captured the period in time that transitions from the end of the last ice age to post-ice age conditions. And this occurred based on the ice core data, not in several years, not in a decade, not even over several months, but the ice age, we snapped out the ice age in a matter of uh, weeks or days or literally overnight. Uh, so it was very, very sudden, very, very catastrophic, which would tie in with the solar outburst, which is just going to hit us, hit us being the Earth, immediately. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show, Robert Schock and the Solar-Induced Dark Age. Robert Schock is a tenured faculty member at Boston University. He earned his doctorate in geology and geophysics at Yale University. His research, put forth in his book, Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future, points to the astronomical cause of the demise of antediluvian civilization, as well as the scientific and archaeological evidence that supports his conclusions. He is well known for his work in Egypt, redating the Sphinx back 12,000 years. Initially, he was criticized for his research because there was no evidence of other civilizations dating back that far until the discovery of the archaeological site of Gobekli Tepe, a very sophisticated version of Stonehenge in southeastern Turkey, where we resume our conversation with Dr. Schock. Dr. Robert Schock, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Haven't you written that the these sophisticated pillars at Gobekli Tepe, they're anthropomorphic in the sense that they have belts, they have arms, they have hands holding their bellies, but their orientation is toward the sky. Isn't that right? That is absolutely correct. I'm glad you brought that up because this ties in with precession also. Just as we have the Sphinx, I believe, oriented toward Leo in the sky on the vernal equinox. So that is referring to precessional ages. At Gebekli Tepe, we have, and I, I should mention this now because sometimes I forget to mention things because it's almost second nature to me. At Gebekli Tepe, we don't have one Stonehenge-like circle or set of pillars. There are 20 or more there that have been found geophysically, and it could be even larger. It's a huge site. A good chunk of four-plus parts of others have been excavated so far. So this is not one Stonehenge-like site. It's as if you have Stonehenge multiplied by a couple of dozen, minimally. It's just a huge site. It was buried intentionally over 10,000 years ago, um, I believe the reason it was buried was because of the catastrophes at the end of the last ice age. We actually have evidence of breakage of the pillars at the end of the last ice age, and they were trying to um, hastily re-erect them, that type of thing. So we have, I believe, actual physical evidence of the, of the catastrophes at the end of the last ice age. Getting to the orientations, returning to the orientations of the pillars, 
the anthropomorphic pillars look in the general direction of south. But when you look at exactly where they're looking in the sky at the end of the last ice age and that period, they seem to be looking at Orion, um, the area of Orion and Taurus in the Pleiades on the vernal equinox. Uh, that is not a processional age per se. They seem to be oriented toward that region of the sky. And as precession changed the orientation of the sky on the vernal equinox, they re-erected the pillars, they built other circles, other stone enclosures, and reoriented them over time to follow the processional changes. So this, again, is very, very sophisticated. It takes a lot of time and energy to do that. They were evidently following things in the sky, recording processional changes, making note of that over, by my estimate, at least a 2,000-year period, and that's only based on what's been excavated so far. It's interesting that it's Orion that they're orienting things to, because my colleague, Robert Bouval, is very, very well known for what is called the Orion Correlation Theory of the Giza Plateau, that even as the Sphinx during the age of Leo was looking at Leo in the sky on the vernal equinox, the entire Giza Plateau has a correlation to Orion. That is, that the three major pyramids, the Great Pyramid, the Second Pyramid, and the Third Pyramid, on the Giza Plateau, in their orientation, mimic the belt stars of Orion in the sky at about 10,000 to 11,000 B.C. Uh, they match up perfectly relative to the Milky Way. We're on the ground. The Milky Way is the Nile, and the, everything lines up perfectly if people want a review of that and the latest discussion. Uh, Robert Boval and I talked about that in our joint book, Origins of the Sphinx, that came out last year. But you have these Orion correlations on the Giza Plateau. You have Orion correlations at the same time following precession at Gebekli Tepe. So I think that's probably more than coincidence at this point. I was sort of embarrassed initially when I found Orion correlations at Gebekli Tepe because I didn't want people to think I was looking at that specifically just to compare it to Giza, but I'm convinced they're absolutely there. And Orion seems to be something that was very important to the ancients. It's talked about even in the Judeo-Christian Bible, the Orion Pleiades tourist region of the sky, and you have it there at Gebekli Tepe. I also want to point out that those pillars, those anthropomorphic pillars, they lack a head. The Gebekli Tepe people could have carved a head if they wanted to. There are smaller statues and whatnot. There's what's sometimes known as a totem pole uh, carved out of stone that was found at Gebekli Tepe that you can now see in the Urfa Museum. There are other smaller statues and whatnot. Some of them are anthropomorphic, and they have heads. They could carve human heads if they wanted to, but they didn't put it on those central pillars of what's known as Enclosure D, one of the major enclosures. Those central pillars are anthropomorphic. They have hands. Um, they have uh, arms. One of them actually has a little dog-like animal under one of the arms that could refer to the dog star in the 
constellations associated with it. And those pillars, one in particular, has a really, really prominent, beautifully carved belt and loincloth. So one possible interpretation is that these central pillars actually are mimicking Orion in the sky. And if you look at the constellation Orion, it is the headless hunter, if you would. It's essentially a torso with well-defined belt stars. Uh, In modern terms of the constellation, people have the arms up in the sky uh, holding maybe a club or something. But those are secondary to the actual asterism of the belt stars and the torso, I would say even if they acknowledge those arms, you couldn't carve those in a pillar. They brought them down to the sides, if you would, metaphorically. But what's important is you've got the belt stars, but lacking the uh, head or the head only shown very, very abstractly. It's actually shown abstractly, I would say, on the pillars, but not well-defined. So this could be Orion, shown in stone, and what do you have around those central pillars? You have a ring of pillars, all carved with different animals. So you've got Orion in the sky, surrounded by the zodiac, surrounded by animals in the sky, if you would, the constellations of the zodiac. That's what zodiac means. It's really the constellations of the zoo, the animals. And you've got the same thing in the enclosures at Gebekli Tepe. You've got Uh, perhaps in stone, essentially a model of the sky from their perspective. You have written that Gobekli Tepe was used and reused for 2,000 years and then intentionally covered over around 8,000 B.C. So, well, I guess what you're saying is that it was damaged, badly damaged. They tried to repair it, and then they covered the whole thing up. Is that right? Correct. That's correct, because I believe, and when I say I believe, it's always based on evidence. I want to stress that. It's not just, I, I don't want to sound the wrong way, but it's not just you know, my random belief. Uh, it's based on the evidence. When you look at Gebekli Tepe, one can see very strong evidence, really quite obvious, on the ground that some of these pillars were knocked over in ancient times. They then try to re-erect them hastily. You can see how they prop them back up again. They actually built stone walls, very crude stone walls, between the pillars to sort of prop up the pillars and hold them together. There has been, quote, mortar and um, sort of a plaster-like substance that has been uh, taken, sampled from those stone walls that dates them back to the end of the last ice age. So... What I'm absolutely convinced of is at Gebekli Tepe, we've captured the period in time that transitions from the end of the last ice age to post-ice age conditions. And this occurred based on the ice core data, not in several years, not in a decade, not even in over several months, but the ice age, we snapped out the ice age in a matter of uh, weeks or days or literally overnight. Uh, so it was very, very sudden, very, very catastrophic, which would tie in with the solar outburst, which is just going to hit us, hit us being the Earth, immediately. Uh, it's not something that's initially prolonged. You might have so-called more, you know, the effects would be profound and last over time, but the initial hit, the initial shock 
uh, would be literally just in a matter of hours. So going back to get back Lake Tepe, we can see where the pillars were broken. They were knocked down. They were hastily re-erected. And they seem to have been trying to do this, the Gebekli Tepe people, to put things back together to orient things again. We can see that they were trying to orient the pillars, put them back into their proper orientation. And ultimately, my speculation is that things were so difficult, so um, profoundly catastrophic and traumatic at the time, that I don't want to say they gave up, but they decided that this was just not working. This is at least one possibility, and they decide to just bury the site completely. Uh, my speculation is that they buried it completely, perhaps with the intention of coming back and uncovering it again, one way to protect the site. And they do this with modern archaeological sites sometimes. They'll excavate them, then they'll rebury them for protection. So they might might have covered it over to protect it with the concept of coming back to uncover it and reassemble it properly, or maybe they buried it essentially as a time capsule for, you know, hopefully posterity to uncover, which we've now done uh, over 10,000 years later. The uh, time when they covered it, they covered it at least 10,000 years ago. It may be longer than that, maybe somewhat closer to the end of the last ice age. But they were trying for at least some period of time to reassemble it and put it back together before they uh, decided to bury the entire site. And once they buried it, it really kept it nice and pristine. So that's one reason we have such good evidence at Gebekli Tepe. As I said before, unlike the Great Sphinx, and this has been one of my issues with dealing with the Sphinx, technical issues, the Sphinx has a lot of overlay of reuse and refurbishing, being repaired, that type of thing. Once Gebekli Tepe is buried and covered over purposefully over 10,000 years ago, no one touched it, no one changed anything until now that it's being uncovered by archaeologists. I'm speaking with geologist and professor Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show, Robert Schock and the Solar-Induced Dark Age. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that the Cappadocia region of modern Turkey is where the soft volcanic bedrock was conducive to the excavation of extensive underground shelters and indeed entire cities. You showed slides of these sites. They were quite dramatic. These pictures were quite extraordinary. Do you think people lived underground, and if so, for how long? Yeah, I'm, I have no doubt people lived underground. And what, what you have to realize is that at the end of the last ice age, with these solar outbursts, with these catastrophic changes, not only did you have all kinds of flooding, not only did you have fires being set on the surface where um, essentially think of huge lightning bolts coming down that can set fires to anything flammable, it can be incredibly destructive. You also had the stripping of the ozone layer, the ionosphere, the magnetosphere. So we can calculate, and um, 
not myself, but physicists I know who I've talked to about this, calculated that you could have very high levels of radiation on the surface of the Earth at the end of the last ice age with all this catastrophe on top of everything else that was happening. Also, a lot of volcanic activity in places where the Earth is conducive to that. Earthquakes worldwide uh, would have been induced not only because you relieve the pressure on the surface of the Earth from, um, you know, when when huge masses of ice are melted at high latitudes, but it's also been found now, and this is counterintuitive for a lot of classic geologists, but it's been found that um, earthquake activity correlates with solar activity. So when you have massive solar events in in outbursts, this will correlate with uh, earthquake activity on Earth, on the planet, as well as volcanic activity. It seems to set it off. In many cases, this is all side notes in a way, but it builds up the bigger picture. In some cases, you can think of an avalanche that's about to occur. Uh, It's going to occur one time or another, but when someone claps or makes a noise, it's that final trigger that sets off the avalanche. It may be the case for earthquakes that they're going to occur eventually, but when you have solar activity disrupting uh, electrical currents, and there are lots of electrical currents and whatnot in the earth underground, that can be sort of the trigger that uh, sets off earthquakes that would eventually happen. So it was very tumultuous at the time, but getting back to the radiation, the radiation would have been um, devastating for large mammals. So large mammals could not tolerate the high levels of radiation. In some cases, exposure for even a week or so may have uh, caused them to die of um, essentially radiation poisoning, Uh, cosmic rays, that type of thing coming in that we would normally be protected from. One way to escape such effects is to go under rocks, to go underground, to go into caves, that type of thing. So we have uh, both large mammals going extinct and a massive extinction of large mammals at the end of the last ice age, very well documented, particularly in North America, exactly at the end of the last ice age. Humans, in some cases, were devastated. Populations were devastated. In other cases, because there were natural caves or other natural features like soft rock that had caves in them, natural caves, and then once you have a natural cave and you go into it, you can extend that cave artificially as necessary, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, This would be a way to escape it. And you might not know in ancient times, 12,000 years ago, what radiation is. You can't feel it, you can't see it, etc. But you would still be inclined to go into caves when, you know, this huge lightning is coming down in torrential rains and everything else. So, so even if they didn't know what radiation was, uh, they probably were going into caves when they had a chance. And it was those pockets of people that could survive. And I believe that during the SIDA period following this solar-induced dark age for thousands of years, there was plenty of memory of what had happened, what had gone on. And in fact, there were smaller solar outbursts, sort of like 
aftershocks of a major earthquake where people were reminded of what was happening and what had happened. And we have that data in the isotope records that the sun had this incredible outburst, but there was still a lot of activity for uh, centuries and millennia after that, after the end of the last ice age. So getting back to something like Cappadocia, there is a region where people could escape into natural caves initially. They then got the concept that, well, we better be prepared if this happens again. So they carved uh, further into the rock. The rock was very amenable to that. It's a relatively soft rock. It protects well from these types of events. So they prepared themselves. In fact, if you have it, you might as well live in it in some cases, which may have been the case in Cappadocia. Uh, but it all really goes back to the end of the last ice age and what was happening there. I also want to point out with Cappadocia, we have, for instance, linguistic evidence that there was a constriction of the population at the end of the last ice age. There was a pocket of people that survived at the end of the last ice age, and we can trace this linguistically to the Cappadocia region, and that apparently there was a group of people that survived there speaking a language which was a predecessor essentially what we now think of the Indo-European languages and then they spread out again and repopulated the more general area spreading out from the Cappadocia region. Well now, Dr. Schock, just before your first visit to Gobekli Tepe, you visited, along with your wife and some other people from Chile, you visited Easter Island. And Easter Island has a lot to do with the story of Gobekli Tepe. What is the standard and conventional archaeological explanation for the Moai statues on Easter Island? I think people are pretty familiar with them, those very stout, thick, huge statues found all over this extremely small island. Yeah, it's an extremely small island. Um, Easter Island is a beautiful little island. It's in, it's very remote, sometimes uh, rightfully called the most remote inhabited place on Earth because it's in the, uh, the South Pacific, not very far south into the Pacific, but it's incredibly remote, uh, thousands of kilometers from any other inhabited area and it's it's really amazing place but what it's known for first and foremost are the moai these big um, torsos and heads that uh, are all over the island all over parts of the island and they were carved out of the volcanic rock there and the standard explanation actually one archaeologist said to me that they were busy work because you had a small island population, you had to keep everyone under control, so it's sort of like a public works project. And they, the leaders had them carve these big statues to keep them busy, and of course it's a little more complicated than that. Even the classic archaeologists would say. They would say that, you know, they were idols or they were represented the ancestors or whatnot. The standard archaeological explanation, if you don't know what something is, it's either a temple or a tomb or some kind of religious object. But the point is that, you know, it's it's a very difficult thing. I'm actually teaching a course right now 
and I get into this at Boston University, that's very difficult to um, interpret the past, uh, especially when you're not in that mindset. You you know, it's it's a big mistake to take our mindset and try to impose it onto another culture, another civilization. And the other thing about Easter Island is that the conventional archaeological view is that it was not inhabited until very recent times from my perspective as a geologist. When I say very recent times from my perspective, archaeologists often talk about Easter Island first being inhabited by other Polynesians, so Polynesians coming from the west, moving east, that this is the last outpost of Polynesia, and they didn't get to Easter Island until maybe 500 A.D., maybe as late as 800, some have even suggested 1200 A.D. So very, very recent, well within the last 2,000 years. I question all of this. I will bring up... uh, Some people will remember him or know of him, Thor Heyerdahl, for instance, who argued very strenuously that there was a South American influence on Easter Island, that people from South America may have influenced Easter Island as well as Polynesians, so there was an influence from both the East and the West. I would go even further than that and say maybe Easter Island and its civilization and culture goes back much, much, much earlier and may have influenced both South America and the rest of Polynesia. So, A couple of things about Easter Island to touch on very, very quickly. I think there's evidence that it goes back much earlier. Civilization on Easter Island goes back much earlier. I believe we have sedimentological evidence in pollen, basically fossil pollen. Um, Evidence going back much earlier for human habitation on Easter Island. Uh, Where I'm going with that is plants that were brought to Easter Island that had to be brought by humans. When you look at some of the moai, they are buried up to their necks and chins in sediment. I don't buy the standard argument that they just dug big holes and stuck them in uh, the holes up to their chins after they carved the bodies with beautiful hands, hands that uh, go to the navel, just like we see in Turkey. In fact, there are many similarities in the iconography of the moai and statues that we see in Turkey that go back to Gebekli Tepe times. This is something I actually show uh, in the color insert of Forgotten Civilization. I have a a picture of um, uh, Moai, and you can compare that to the pillars with the hands and um, belt and uh, framing the navel that we see at Gebekli Tepe. There's something or a statue known as Urfa Man that was found at Urfa that goes back to Gebekli Tepe times in Turkey that I believe has iconographic similarities, same type of um, same type of um, should we say symbolism and placement of the hands and arms, etc., as we have at Gebekli Tepe. So these are all very intriguing. Uh, if the, some of the moai were buried in meters and meters and meters of sediment, this suggests to me geologically that they are much older than just a couple of thousand years old, that they go back to a much, much earlier age. I'm speaking with geologist and professor Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show, 
Robert Schock and the Solar-Induced Dark Age. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Another thing that I would point out, and there's actually a lot of evidence more than we can probably cover now, is that some of the moai are not as big and not as impressive from that point of view, but even more impressive from another point of view because they're not carved out of relatively soft soft volcanic tufts or what's known as tuffa stone or tufts, which is a relatively soft volcanic rock by you know, geological standards, there are a few moai that are carved out of really beautiful, fine, hard, dense basalt. And the perhaps the finest one no longer resides in Easter Island because it was taken to the British Museum in the late 19th century and has lived there ever since. But these basalt moai, a couple of things about them, they have consistently been found at very, very deep archaeological levels, which would suggest that they're older than the other Moai. They have also been found, the British Museum one, for instance, was found in a context where it was being reused. It was even recarved on the back a little bit, which it sounds similar to the Sphinx being reused and recarved. So again, that indicates it itself originally goes back to an earlier period. And I'm also convinced that the basalt quarries where these had to be quarried um, in order to carve them, where they found the huge, good, carvable blocks of basalt, not just smaller fragments of basalt, but big blocks that could be carved into these statues, in particular the statue now in the British Museum, have not been found on the island, even though it's a very, very small island. You can cover it very quickly. The geological evidence, in my opinion, suggests that these basalt quarries are probably now underwater, that they're on the edge of the island, stratigraphically lower, geographically lower, and they were exposed at one time when sea levels were lower at the end of the last ice age. Since then, sea levels have risen, buried these quarries, but that would suggest, again, that the moai that are carved from that basalt go back to a much earlier period, unless you want to speculate that they're going underwater uh, to quarry basalt, which would be, should we say, really, really, really difficult, uh, even with modern scuba diving equipment, etc., much less back in ancient times. And there's even evidence talking to some of the Easter Islanders when Katie and I have been there on some of our trips that they say they remember the late Jacques Cousteau and his crew when they were uh, looking around the edge of the island underwater, they seem to have found what looked like very regular rectangular type structures in basalt off the coast that to me are suggestive of potential quarries. So there's lots of things going on along those lines with Easter Island, but I want to get to something very, very important about Easter Island, and that is that there are petroglyphs on Easter Island. And there's a Rongo Rongo script on Easter Island. It's the only, quote, Polynesian, unquote, island that has its own indigenous script. 
It's known as the Rongo Rongo, and this ties in with petroglyphs and ties in with the end of the last ice age very, very explicitly. Uh, I have to mention another researcher now, and that is Dr. Anthony Parat, and he's at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and he has independently looked at what I would date to the end of the last ice age. He simply puts it at a remote period in time, uh, but we can translate to end of the last ice age. He also has put together evidence that there was a major solar outburst, a major solar event in what he calls remote prehistory, and something that he found was, and I've since confirmed this and agree with him on it, is that at that ancient time, and I'll use my terminology, end of the last ice age, when the solar outburst occurred, people saw things in the sky. So nowadays, people can think of at very high latitudes, the aurora borealis, um, the northern lights are in the south, the um, southern lights, and you see things in the sky. This has to do with uh, uh, plasma electrical particles hitting the uh, magnetosphere, hitting the atmosphere, interacting the different atoms and whatnot, interacting in it, and it makes what looks looks like lights in the sky. Uh, these are just pretty things in the sky nowadays. No one thinks of them as being harmful normally, although if it's strong enough, it can affect communication systems, satellites, that type of thing. At the end of the last ice age, you had this, but I hate to use the term, but as if it were on steroids. So you had what we would think of as northern and southern lights, but much, much, much more intense, also being so intense, they were seen around the globe, not just at high latitudes, and also becoming very intense, they started to take on very diagnostic shapes, very um, distinct patterns and shapes, which humans tend to uh, see things in shapes, and that's how we visualize, that's how we see things, that's how we remember. These particular shapes that would form what looks sort of like stick figures, uh, human stick figures, and Dr. Brat has established this. His specialty is plasma physics, studying such things, and he's established this theoretically and in the laboratory some decades ago. He, as he described it to me himself once, and he talks about this in his publications, he also, as a hobby, was looking at petroglyphs, carvings on rocks by ancient people. Los Alamos is out in, uh, in the west, and there you have um, petroglyphs on the rocks. He would look at these, go out for walks and rides, uh, just as a hobby, and he put two and two together. What he was seeing on some of the rocks from very ancient times were essentially depictions of plasma configurations that you would see in the sky during a solar outburst. So if that all makes sense, they effectively, at the end of the last ice age, were seeing things in the sky, and some people actually drew depictions of what they were seeing on rocks that we now call petroglyphs. Katie and I and John Anthony West, before he passed away, for instance, 
we did a conference. We uh, attended and spoke at a conference in Norway, and we got a chance to go and see petroglyphs in Norway that are well dated to the end of the last ice age. They had all the diagnostic depictions, all the diagnostic features of what you would see in the sky during a major solar outburst. And this is not just theoretical because there was a small, by astrophysical perspectives, a small solar outburst in 1859 known as the Carrington event. And people drew and people recorded what they saw in the sky at that time. And it was the same types of images, the same types of figures. Uh, some look like stick figures of humans. Some look like cascading ring structures. Uh, I talk about this in Forgotten Civilization. I think there's some images on my website so people can take a look at that. Going back to Easter Island, returning to our discussion of Easter Island, you have petroglyphs on Easter Island, but even more importantly, you have the Rongo Rongo script. And Katie, my wife, actually first made the connection that the Rongo Rongo glyphs, if you would, they sort of look like hieroglyphs. People think of them as hieroglyphs. They are the same thing. They are also showing what was in the sky. They're basically depictions of what you would see in the sky during a major solar outburst. So the Easter Islanders or their ancestors seem to have recorded this. And then the actual Rongo Rongo nowadays, when I say nowadays, in the ones that have survived, they're known as rongo-rongo tablets. They're carved on wood. They don't go back to the end of the last ice age, but they're copies of copies of copies of what was recorded at that remote period of time. Uh, not unlike um, Plato's dialogues. For many of Plato's dialogues, the oldest manuscript we have is only a 1,000 or so years old, uh, but it's a copy of a copy of a copy. So... We have some very important evidence recorded and preserved, I believe, through the Easter Island culture of what was happening at the end of the last Ice Age. Yes, the the Rongo-Rongo glyphs that are copied onto wood and also the petroglyphs, which are carved in stone, and those are found worldwide. They're found everywhere. They're found everywhere. Dr. Parad and his team have documented the exact same configurations, the exact same glyphs in 130-plus countries around the world. Yes, that's right. So that's corroborated by the Rongo-Rongo glyphs. Is there evidence of um, this type of uh, glyph in uh, Gobekli Tepe? Yes, we have actually... Similar types of things from Turkey, Gebekli Tepe, even on some of the pillars which would have been carved or recarved, you know, at the end of the last ice age as all this catastrophe was occurring. Um, sort of, sometimes they're they, they're referred to as weird. Um, you know, like there's one that some people interpret as maybe a person giving birth, that type of thing. You know, we tend to anthropomorphize them. Uh, there are symbols that look like they're referring to plasma and lightning. There are sort of H-type symbols that probably actually refer to, again, in a stylized version, what was happening in the sky. There are other texts 
when I say text, carvings from Turkey, not necessarily specifically Gebekli Tepe, but other sites in the general area that record, in fact, glyphs that are incredibly similar to um, what you see on Easter Island, the Rongo Rongo. In fact, some people, one one suggestion, this is an old suggestion, by bring it up for a different reason. Some people, uh, I want to say in the 40s or 30s, have even suggested that the Rongo Rongo was somehow connected to um, Asia and the Near East because they saw similarities between the Rongo Rongo glyphs and different inscriptions that they saw in the Turkey through India region. I don't think it's that one copied the other. I think it's that both of them are these diverse cultures, I should say, were seeing similar things in the sky, each interpreting them in their own way to a certain extent, sort of stylistically, but they were all based on the same natural phenomenon at the end of the last ice age in the sky. On the Giza Plateau, and this is just very, very recent evidence now, I have found, and I do mention this on my website, uh, it was shown to me by a couple of my colleagues, Egyptological colleagues, these strange rocks that look like they're burnt, quote-unquote, on the Giza Plateau. But what I think it is is that the Giza Plateau, we actually had a major strike, plasma strike, we can call it you know, sun-lightning strike, actually touching down on the Giza Plateau where it, quote, burnt and vitrified the rock. And going to the ancient inscriptions, there's something known as the inventory stella, which actually purports to describe the Sphinx itself being hit by a huge, quote, lightning bolt or thunderbolt and damaging the Sphinx in incredibly ancient times. In fact, the inscription says that this happened before the time of Khufu, more or less before the time that the Sphinx was even supposed to exist, according to conventional Egyptologists. Uh, and Egyptologists have known about this for decades, but they just dismiss it as nonsense and myth. Uh, I don't think it needs to be dismissed as nonsense and myth. I think it was a collective memory of that very early period uh, in remote ancient times at the end of the last ice age. I'm speaking with geologist and professor Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show, Robert Schock and the Solar-Induced Dark Age. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And with regard to Easter Island, what do you think was the purpose of the low, thick stone houses that you write oddly resemble modern bunkers or fallout shelters? I was quite shocked when I saw the color photograph in your book of these houses. They really do look like bunkers. Oh, I I think they do look like sort of bunkers or fallout shelters. And honestly, I think that's effectively what they were, that the best way to describe them in modern times is that that is exactly what they were intended for. Uh, This doesn't preclude that they were used for other things, rituals and whatnot. But the point is that it's made for a different purpose. And I suspect that the quote, stone houses that we're talking about on Easter Island were not necessarily made during the the solar outburst, 
but at least made in case another one occurred, because there was this memory of such things, this concept that we better prepare ahead of time. And yes, they were used later for the birdman ritual and all that type of thing, and I'm familiar with all that. But that doesn't mean that was their original purpose or that was why they were built initially. Yes, once they're built, you can use them for other things temporarily, but still revert back to their original use if there's another solar outburst. And I want to point out that on Easter Island, we don't only have those so-called stone houses that sure look like um, bunkers and fallout shelters, but the island is riddled with natural caves. It's a volcanic island. It has natural lava tube caves, and there is a long tradition of the people on Easter Island living in the caves and using the caves as living quarters, even building up shelves and benches, that type of thing, uh, inside the caves. On one of our trips there, Katie and I were talking to one of the local Easter Islanders. He was actually driving one of the vehicles that we were touring around in, just telling us local legends. He didn't know anything about my interests or my research, and he just happened to mention that, yes, one of the traditions is that for thousands of years they had to live in these caves because things were so bad on the surface. Um, there's also a legend about the sky falling, an Easter Island legend, the sky falling and coming down and then going back up again. I think this all refers to things happening in the sky associated with solar outbursts. When um, in the 19th century, the Rongo Rongo scripts were first discovered by the Europeans, because the Easter Islands actually hit them until the mid-19th century, uh, Europeans didn't even know that they existed. Uh, when they were first asked about them and asked to read them and interpret them, the Easter Islanders at that point really couldn't, quote, read them. Uh, but what they indicated is they had something to do with the sky and what had happened in the sky. So I think all the evidence collectively comes back together that they were preparing for, they were aware of what had happened at the end of the last ice age, and at least for a number of generations, innumerable generations, they realized that you should be prepared in case this happened again. Yes, you write that plasma physicist Anthony Peratt's plasma configurations, petroglyphs, and rongo-rongo glyphs all depict the same solar electrical phenomena. You have yeah. developed the term solar-induced dark age. Uh, how long of a period do you think this covered? Oh, the solar-induced dark age, I can tell you quite specifically, I guess. The solar-induced dark age begins at the end of the last ice age. So you have this huge catastrophe at 9700 B.C. that wipes out these advanced civilizations, these advanced cultures and societies at that time that were doing things like carving the Great Sphinx or the Proto-Sphinx, the Mehet, the lioness, that were building things like Gebekli Tepe and had all this sophisticated knowledge and technology and techniques. They were thrown into a tailspin. They were devastated by the catastrophes at the end of the last ice age. 
at 9700 BC, so I date the beginning of the solar-induced dark age, or Siddha for short, solar-induced dark age. And it's sort of ironic that the sun would induce a dark age, uh, but that's what happened. So it begins at 9700 BC, and in my assessment, lasts for about 6,000 years, approximately 6,000 years until civilization reemerges between 4,000 and 3,000 BC. So in round numbers, you could say 9700 BC to maybe 3700 BC is a solar-induced dark age, that 6,000-year period. And what do we see during that 6,000-year period? We see the remnants of societies being much more primitive, being, quote, hunter-gatherers, as people think of it. Uh, Yes, they have some agriculture, but they're not doing super well, frankly. Uh, It's even acknowledged by conventional archaeologists that lifespans probably went down during that period. Uh, People were not as healthy during that period. They were living, in many cases, at a lower technological level. So instead of Gebekli Tepe with megalithic stone structures, what we have is something like Chetelhuyuk a couple of thousand years later in Turkey, where you essentially have lots of mud brick houses all stacked against each other, all compacted against each other. It's like the people are huddling together collectively, so to speak, um, protecting themselves. And that's not just an isolated case. That's what you have consistently during this period of time. You don't have the incredible megalithic structures as you have before the end of the last ice age until the reemergence, what I call the reemergence of sophisticated culture and civilization, which starts to pick up again about 4000 BC and really comes to blossom by, say, in Egypt, 3100 BC with the um, rise of dynastic Egypt and other parts of the world maybe a little earlier, maybe in Sumer, uh, in southern Mesopotamia, a bit earlier. People argue about that, but sometime around three to 4,000 B.C. What I'm talking about is a 6,000-year, quote, dark age between the collapse of one cycle of civilization, as I referred to it, at the end of the last ice age, and the reemergence of the next cycle of civilization. So from my perspective... The cycle of civilization that we're in now began a bit over 5,000 years ago and encompasses all of dynastic Egypt and other civilizations at the same time in Mesopotamia, etc., right up to today with um, our modern technology and electronics, that type of thing. And what is very potentially scary, and I'm not a doomsayer or want to be a scaremonger, But civilization collapsed at the end of the last ice age, uh, 9700 BC. There was a major solar outburst. The sun has shorter-term and longer-term cycles. One of the longer-term cycles is on about 10,000, 12,000-year cycle. And there's astrophysical evidence that the sun is ramping up again and going into a 
unstable period as it was at the end of the last ice age, and we could have another major solar outburst, another major solar event, and if it does, uh, we are very, very vulnerable, just like that previous civilization was at the end of the last ice age. In fact, we're probably much, much, much more vulnerable because our electronics and grid system and nuclear power plants and whatnot, it would be absolutely devastated by a solar outburst, our, our modern technological society. Yes, and what you're saying is corroborated by electric universe theory, right? Oh, absolutely. And I've, I've spoken at their conferences. Now, I want to say that electric universe is not a unified group. I mean, there's lots of different... Uh, branches in it, but uh, they have put a lot of emphasis that uh, we have to look at electrical events in the universe on Earth, that type of thing. And this ties in with solar outbursts, which are essentially electrical uh, geomagnetic um, uh, effects on Earth. So magnetic electrical effects. And yes, it would definitely tie in with them, and it would tie in with a lot of other work that's being done now on what is sometimes called space weather, the concept that you can have magnetic storms, solar events, even very minor ones, which can disrupt communication satellites, uh, can disrupt uh, uh, power grid systems. We've had this even modern times that uh, very small solar events can, for instance, bring down uh, parts of grid systems locally. There's a very famous one in Quebec, I want to say 1989 or so, uh, when a lot of millions of people went without power for hours. That was very, very minor. Uh, if we had uh, an event the level of the Carrington event in 1859, it would be devastating. In 1859, there was what's known as a solar event. It consisted of a couple of coronal mass ejections, were known as coronal mass ejections, that were uh, spit out by the sun, if you would. Uh, charged particles hit Earth, hit the magnetosphere, and overloaded the electronics of the time, 1859, there wasn't much in the way of electronics. What we had on Earth, what humanity had, was uh, telegraph systems and telegraph lines. But overloaded the telegraph lines, they went crazy. The telegraph system went crazy. It actually overloaded the telegraph lines and burnt down several telegraph stations, uh, it could have electrocuted people, fortunately did not, uh, but it was devastating to the um, primitive electronics, if you would, at the time, and they were very, very robust compared to what we have now. Now we have really delicate electronics as well as the major grid systems, and if we were hit by an event even half or less as powerful as the 1859 event, it would be devastating to our modern communication systems, our electrical grid, I should say, our electronics. Uh, probably there would be what they call a EMP, electromagnetic pulse associated with it. There was probably one in 1859, but there was no way to detect it. An EMP now would um, could, in fact, just knock out um, personal computers and cell phones, that type of thing, independent of any other damage 
that was caused by the more general outburst. So we've, in some ways, unwittingly, in my opinion, boxed ourselves in and made ourselves really vulnerable to what is a naturally reoccurring event um, emanating from the sun. Dr. Robert Schock, thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. I hate to leave on such a note. Um, but one thing I want to emphasize is that I find ancient civilizations, ancient cultures inherently fascinating. I think it's just really interesting for many, many people, but also there are real things to be learned from them. And, uh, you know, these are not just sort of, oh, interesting, isn't it? Interesting to see how ancient people lived and what the Egyptians built and that type of thing. But there are real lessons we should um, learn from them, including some things about how we should prepare for the future because things that happen to these ancient civilizations, uh, those types of natural catastrophes will occur again. And either they survived them or they didn't, but we should learn from it. been speaking with Dr. Robert Schock. Today's show has been Robert Schock and the Solar-Induced Dark Age. Robert Schock is a tenured faculty member at Boston University. He earned his doctorate in geology and geophysics at Yale University. He is the author of Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future. And with Robert Boval, Origins of the Sphinx, Celestial Guardian of Pre-Pharaonic Civilization, among many other books. As a member of the Organization for the Research of Ancient Cultures, a nonprofit that raises funds for more research, he co-leads tours to Egypt with his colleague, Egyptian Egyptologist Mohammed Ibrahim. Their next tour will be in June 2019. For more information, please visit robertshock.com. That's Robert S-C-H-O-C-H dot com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself. <laughs>